Welcome to the Heartbreak to Happiness Show with Sarah Davison. If you're struggling with a breakup and you feel shocked, angry, betrayed, devastated, or sad and alone, then this podcast is for you. Best-selling author and award-winning host, Sarah Davison, shares how you too can get on with your life to heal, grow, and move from heartbreak to happiness. Here's your host, Sarah Davison. Welcome back to the show. And today I have a very special guest, Mr. Kenneth R. Feinberg, who is one of the USA's leading experts in alternative dispute resolution. Mr. Feinberg has been designated by the US federal government to serve in a variety of public compensation and related funding programs over the past 25 years. And you may know him as he served as the special master of the 9-11 Victim Compensation Fund of 2001. He was also appointed by the Obama administration to oversee compensation of victims of the Deepwater Horizon oil rig explosion and BP oil spill in the Gulf of Mexico. And as well as acting as mediator and administrator on a wide variety of federally related compensation programs, Mr. Feinberg also served as administrator of 23 Catholic Church Diocese independent reconciliation and compensation funds designed to compensate the victims of church sexual abuse. As someone who has had to face some really extreme traumatic situations, I am super excited to welcome Mr. Ken Feinberg to the show. Welcome, Ken. Thank you so much for joining me. Glad to be here. Oh, well, I'm very, very excited. Now, you and I met on an aeroplane, didn't we, of all places. I was off doing my American TV tour, and I, you came in and sat next to me, and we started chatting and we, I just loved everything you had to say that day. So I am so grateful that we bonded, we became friends, and uh, I'm so excited you're joining me. So thank you so much. Okay. Well, your story really moved me on the plane. Um, you've been sort of called the master of disasters and a problem solver who's taken on the, the grimiest, thorniest, and most intractable claims and controversies uh, you're also the man that judges and presidents go to and say, here, here's a mess. Here's some money. Go sort it out. You know, how on earth did you get into this line of business? Did you always want to be a lawyer? I, um, I decided I wanted to be a lawyer when I was in college. And at the time, I thought perhaps I would um, become an actor uh, and go to drama school at Yale, Harvard. And my father gave me some very sound advice. He said, you know, Ken, most actors are starving and waiting on tables as waiters, waiting for the big break. Why don't you instead uh, take your acting talents, go to law school, and use your talents in the courtroom rather than on the movie screen or in the theater? And that's what I did. And it was very sound advice, I must say, from my, from my father. Oh, yeah, I bet. I bet. That's how I, I became guess... a lawyer. That's how I became a lawyer. I love it. I remember when you came, you sat down on the plane and we started talking and you said, I said, oh, what do you do? And you said, oh, I'm a lawyer. And I remember thinking, oh, goodness, because I deal with a lot of family lawyers in my, in my time. Never have I met a lawyer that has captivated my attention so much for, the, for a plane ride at all. Like three hours just flew by. Um, you were telling me about some of the different cases that you've worked on. T tell us a little bit for my listeners the kind of work that you've done, Ken. Well, I've been asked by judges in certain cases like the Agent Orange Vietnam case where there were Vietnam soldiers from the United States that were injured by exposure to the herbicide, Agent Orange, while they were serving in Vietnam. That was the case where I had to compensate them. 9-11, of course, the Deepwater Horizon oil rig explosion in the Gulf of Mexico, where BP uh, had to compensate thousands of victims. 
consequence of that uh, oil spill, the Boston Marathon bombings uh, on Patriot's Day, a holiday in Boston where uh, two bombers exploded, bombs that killed people and killed four people and injured hundreds. We had a compensation program for that. Um, the 25 first grade little ones in school in Connecticut, in Sandy Hook, where a deranged gunman killed all of them. We had to compensate those people. So there have been maybe a dozen uh, to 15 uh, compensation programs that have been established in the United States by policymakers, Congress, president, a governor, a mayor, a judge, and I've been asked in those cases to design and administer compensation to be provided eligible victims. I mean, that has got to be such a tough job because you're dealing with so much emotion, so much trauma. I mean, all those cases are horrific. I mean, I think, you know, over here, the other side of the pond, we've heard of all those cases, and some of them have had movies made about them, including the 9-11, where you were played by Michael Keaton, Michael Keaton in uh, Worth, which is a phenomenal movie. If someone listening right now hasn't, hasn't watched that, by the way, go get it. It's on Netflix. Uh, it's called Worth, and it details a lot about how that played out. Tell us, for those who haven't watched it, Ken, exactly how did you get involved and what was your role in 9-11? Because that was, that was quite a, a heavy case for you. 13 days after the attacks, 9-11-2001, Congress passed a law. And the law said anyone who was injured or killed, uh, physically injured on 9-11, the airplanes, the World Trade Center or the Pentagon, can voluntarily decide that rather than go to court, rather than litigate, rather than sue, they could enter this private, uh, this the, not private, this, this public compensation program funded by the taxpayer. And in return for receiving compensation, waive their right to go to court. You can't sue the airlines, you can't sue the World Trade Center can't sue the security guard companies. Take this money if you want it, voluntary. Sign a release, I will not sue. Um, that was during the Bush administration. And the Bush administration wisely concluded that this program better be completely bipartisan, not Democrat, not Republican, as you would say, not labor, not conservative, not yeah. liberal not red, not blue states, purely apolitical. And President Bush decided, well, if it's gonna be apolitical, let's choose as the administrator, the former chief of staff to Senator Kennedy, who's about as opposite from my administration as you can get. And Senator Kennedy said, the guy you want is Ken Feinberg. He was the head of my office and he knows about this stuff. And I was interviewed by the Attorney General of the United States, John Ashcroft, by the Director of the Budget, uh, Mitch Daniels. And we decided, yes, let's have Ken do it. And for 33 months under that statute, I compensated uh, 5,300 victims, dead and injured, physically injured, and paid out in taxpayer money a little over $7 billion and uh, all but a handful of people who were eligible, all but a handful, uh, voluntarily decided to enter the program. Wow. I mean, the movie depicts your journey through that, but did you have any understanding before you started on that case of what you were undertaking with the level of emotion from the families and, and, and just the depth that you were going to get into with, with the horror, I guess, of what you were experiencing? You uh, hit it exactly right. 
you hit it exactly right. Um, I did. I, I underestimated in doing the 9-11 fund, I underestimated the emotion. This was a program that was established days after the attacks and people were extremely emotional, angry, frustrated about life's unfairness. And um, um, I had the lawyer background, but I didn't have, I should have been a, I should have had a degree in divinity or psychiatry because you're dealing with very vulnerable people and the emotional aspect of it. I mean, you know all about that. You know all about that emotional overhang in these cases. And it became extremely difficult because of that. Yeah, I mean, one of the things that, you know, lawyers, you know, especially the family lawyers, which is what I know more about, but you strip out a lot of the emotion from the case because that's that's the job. You don't focus on the emotion, but you were there facing families and you actually met with families as well, didn't you? It wasn't just doing a, you know, a paperwork. It was actually having to meet the grieving families. Tell us a little bit about that. I, uh, I recognized right at the outset, uh, you couldn't simply run an assembly line. You had to give any family that wanted the opportunity. Don't forget, you know this, many, many victims grieve in private. They don't want to see anybody. They don't want any help. They don't want any public expression of condolence. They want to be left alone to grieve. But other people took advantage of this opportunity to come and see me personally in confidence to vent about life's unfairness, to validate the memory of a lost loved one, uh, to discuss compensation. And uh, we afforded any eligible claimant who wanted to come and see me personally, they could do so. And over 33 months, I met with about over close to a thousand individual victims who um, asked for and received an opportunity to see me. Gosh, and, and you were working Extremely out. debilitating, extremely debilitating. Yeah, and also with no sort of emotional training for that and how you, you cope with that, the grief. I mean, I know, as you said, in, in my job as a coach, you know, we see a lot of people going through that grieving cycle, the loss cycle, which is the same process you go through during a breakup or divorce as you do after death of a loved one. And the first stage is denial. Uh, then you go into anger. Um, and then you can start moving on a little bit, but it's a while till you get to acceptance. So having that fund set up so quickly, people were still in the absolute throes of grief and, and the horror and the shock and the denial and then the anger, which I guess you saw the best and the worst of people, right, in those early days. Uh, not the worst. You see as objectively as you can. I, I don't have your experience in this, but... but on the emotional side, you see as objectively as you can the grief. Um, I tell people all the time, these programs don't promote justice. They don't promote fairness. How can they? How can money be a substitute for loss? What they do promote is mercy. It's mercy, compassion, and um, I learned over 33 months that no two individuals grieve the same way. They don't. Everybody has a different story. Everybody uh, professes different emotions and you do the best you can as a listener uh, to promote empathy. Yeah. And then when you're tying up that depth of emotion with a monetary value that you have to decide, because it wasn't the same for everyone with this compensation fund, was it? It was at your discretion. So how on earth did you work out who gets what? The, the, the financial part of it is not rocket science. Courts in the United States, and I think in England, courts every day 
use the same formula in compensating innocent victims. One, what would that victim have earned over a work life but for the tragedy? Well, bankers, stockbrokers, lawyers, doctors, they received more than waiters, busboys, soldiers, firemen, policemen. They earn more, they get more. That's first. Secondly, the formula, in addition to economic loss, what amount should be added for pain and suffering? Emotional distress visited on the survivors. What's that dollar value? Now, if you take economic loss and the dollar value of emotional distress, add them together, there is the value of a life. There is the formula, the methodology that courts, juries, lawyers implement every day in this country. It's the emotional part where you have to listen when individuals sobbing, crying, uh, screaming, uh, express their how distraught they are at the unanticipated loss of a loved one. Yeah. I mean, I can't imagine that. I see, I deal with a lot of grief in my work, but that is just another level that you're dealing with. I, I still struggle to, you know, you, I understand there's a formula, but it must be so hard to put a dollar value, any monetary value on emotional impact. How are you, Judging that, is that on you know the, the family they leave behind or their responsibilities if they care for people? What, what how do you put a value on that emotional stress? You don't. You try and avoid the emotional distress. Now you've hit on something. In addition to the economic loss suffered by a victim, you have to vary the value of a life. How many dependents were left behind? Was the victim single, married, how many children? Um, those are factors that have to enter into any valuation, which we did. We had a formula, very transparent. Anybody could understand it, but um, that was necessary to take into account variations, not only as to the type of employment, but variations as to the number of dependents starting with a spouse and then children and uh, uh, siblings, grandparents, all of those factors, all of those elements enter into the methodology. Mm. And when you were doing this in the movie, they do, I mean, I think it's fantastic the way they depict the different families that came in and some of the different scenarios. I know there was um, a woman who was married and her husband had died, but he had another family and she didn't know about it. Is that true or is that a fictional for, for drama in the movie? Very true. Now, what was not true in the movie, but the uh, director took a little bit of, shall we say, dramatic license in the movie, and I'm not giving anything away. People could still turn on Netflix and see the movie. But in the movie, they have me, Michael Keaton, visiting the wronged spouse, the spouse who was unaware of her husband's other life, philandering, other, other girlfriend, other family. Uh, I never visited her. She never knew. In real life, as the book points out, we compensated her and her their three children. And without her knowledge, we compensated the girlfriend as the guardian of his two other children by her. And now that was over 20 years ago. I'll bet you they know each other by now, but it wasn't my place to try and explain that. But in the movie, uh, there's an effort to explain it. And it's a highlight of the movie. It's very, very dramatic. Yeah, it is. It is. And it, it's so powerful. And, and it manages to evoke that pain. And also your journey through it. 
Um, what would you say, and I know I asked this on, on the plane when we first met, what was the, the biggest lesson that you learned from working on the 9-11 case? Hi, it's Sarah Davison here, the Divorce Coach. I hope you're enjoying this episode of Heartbreak to Happiness. I just wanted to let you know about a free gift I've got for you, which I know will help you if you're struggling with your breakup or divorce right now. I'd like to offer you a free week's membership of my Heartbreak to Happiness online support group sessions with unlimited access to any of the groups during this time. So what are they? Well, these are friendly and confidential online support groups run by my accredited coaches. I've designed them to ensure that you know you're not alone and there is help and support out there to help you cope better. One delegate, Jane, said after her first session, I can't believe how much better I feel in just one hour. Another delegate, Wendy, said, my friends and family are so fed up of hearing me talk about this and now I finally feel like I've found my tribe. I've designed these sessions so you'll meet other people going through similar situations and you'll be able to share your story in a safe space. My specialist coaches are all trained personally by me and are there to offer support and help to enable you to dial down those negative emotions and let go of your ex. So I wanted to make a special offer to all my podcast listeners, which is a three weeks access to this unique support. It means that you will have access to as many support sessions as you would like to attend in a week. And we've got lots of days and different times to choose from. This is a great way to start to take your power back and help you feel more empowered. Remember, as I always say, it's not what happens to you that defines you. It's what you do about it that makes you the person you are. So sign up now at www.saradavison.com forward slash support group. That's saradavison.com forward slash support group to claim your free gift and to move from your heartbreak to happiness. What was the, the biggest lesson that you learned from working on the 9-11 case? Well, I learned a lot of lessons, such as empathy is the key. Be careful what you say to very grieving um, individuals who aren't certain about what tomorrow will bring, never mind questions of compensation. Empathy. The ability to listen and relate. You're a specialist in this. The ability to listen and relate to the person. The other thing I learned, I must say, is how the law can be extremely unfair and arbitrary. Back in 2001, the law did not permit me in my creating my formula to compensate the same sex partner of the victim. Yeah, I saw that. Today, today the law requires it. Back then, um, women, men living together, or men and women living together, but unmarried, um, the law didn't recognize the survivor's right to get compensation. And in the movie, I think the most powerful moment in the movie is when my colleague, Camille Byros, who was the deputy special master of this program, there's a scene in the movie where she has to explain to a same-sex partner why he is ineligible to receive compensation like anybody else. And um, Amy Ryan plays Camille, and that is, I think, the moral center of the entire film. The injustice of um, the situation, but the law required it, and Camille had to mm. enforce the law. 
Yeah, that was definitely one of the one of the moving parts of the movie. There's so many though. I mean, I think I didn't realize that was that was true. So that's I didn't realize that the law had changed since then. I think that's incredible. I mean, do you think the movie helped change that, or was that changed since? Was that changing before the movie came out? No, no, that law was created by the Supreme Court of the United States uh, two or three years before the movie. Um, today, uh, the law recognizes same-sex partners as eligible as heterosexual partners. The law today recognizes that one need not be a legitimate spouse in order to receive compensation. And um, that, I think, has been a great benefit in the evolution of compensation in the United States. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. It's got to evolve with the times and what culture is doing and relationships these days, the dynamics are very different. So it is important. And I think that was one of the injustices that we saw from the 9-11 when that, that guy did not get his compensation. It was heartbreaking actually to, to see that. Yeah, I mean, you said then that you have to be careful what you say to grieving victims. Can you explain what you mean by that? We're talking about empathy and, and sort of connecting with those people. Yes, I learned a very hard but important lesson in my administration of the fund. Be careful what you say in trying to exhibit condolence and empathy. I think in your line of work, you must be ever vigilant as to what you say to very angry or frustrated or um, vulnerable people. In 9-11, I'll never forget, a man came to see me, 82 years old. He lost his son at the Pentagon when the plane hit the building. And he was crying. And he said, Mr. Feinberg, um, this is terrible. A father should never have to bury a son. It doesn't matter how much money you give me. My life is over. I would gladly have um, substituted my life for my son. And um, um, I'll never be the same. And I looked at him, and in an effort to express empathy, I said to him, uh, Mr. Jones, this is horrible, a terrible tragedy. I know how you feel. Well, that was a mistake. He put his arm on my shoulder. He said, Mr. Feinberg, you've got a very difficult job. I don't envy what you have to do. Don't ever tell someone like me that you know how I feel. You have no idea how I feel. And it sounds robotic, pretentious, condescending. And um, you shouldn't do that. Well, I'll never do that again. <laughs> yeah. That. yeah. I'll never do that again. And you learn in my line of work, if you want to express empathy, the less you say, the better. Become a good listener. Express your condolence and then stay mute and let people vent about life's unfairness and the loss of a loved one, et cetera. And um, I, I, I just surmise one of the most difficult aspects of your job, your effort to help people, is what you can say and not say in a very vulnerable emotional situation where if you're not careful, it's a step backward, never mind a step forward. And uh, I did this in 9-11. You have to do it every day. Yeah, I mean, that that was a... I mean, that story is incredible because it's so true. We want to connect. And, you know, connecting is I understand, I hear, I'm there for you. But actually, you're right, listening and, and just letting them vent is absolutely key. Um, 
when you were seeing all this emotion, at any point, did anyone say we should get some therapy for these guys or emotional support? Was there anyone that said, look, money is one side of this, but you know, if you really want to care for people, you know, the emotions, you know, the money isn't going to solve that problem, right? You know, that's an interesting question. I, I, we found, I've found in all of these programs, but mainly the 9-11 fund, that people want to be left alone. You can advise them to seek psychiatric help or counseling. We offered it okay. to those who want very, very few. We offered them free financial planning as well. Very few accepted it. Um, it's uh, it was interesting to us and somewhat surprising that free counsel, free, was rejected by the overwhelming number of eligible claims. I wonder if that was because it was offered with the money settlement it wasn't offered from who was giving that support it was an independent body was it who was going to provide independent. It? and it had nothing to do with the money you were getting the money no matter what but it, okay. as, as an add-on would you want counseling or help and very very few accepted it now That's some may have already done it on their own anyway they had yeah. their own private that that may be as well I think that's fascinating because they I mean, obviously everybody reacts differently and you're dealing with people right in the grip of total overwhelm, you know, and it is hard to ask for help sometimes. And I think because the whole nation was grieving as well, I think there's a different dynamic to it just being a, an individual incident. But how did you cope? Because you were faced not only with those, you know, the individual family going through their own trauma, you were meeting hundreds and hundreds of people who were all sharing some of the most awful stories with you. Um, how did you personally cope? Did you get therapy? Did you have support? Who helped you through that? Well, I had a lot of support uh, from my colleagues, from Camille and my colleagues. Uh, family members were quite supportive. My um, great secret weapon also was twofold. I love the opera and, and classical music. I must have gone to concerts three nights a week, uh, the height of civilization. During the daytime, you're, you're dealing with the horrors of civilization. At night, Beethoven, Mozart, Bach, Mahler. So um, that was a tremendous help for me. The other thing is, I must say, when the president of the United States is asking you to come to the rescue of the country, really, not just the victims, but the nation, sort of girds your resolve to do the job and do it right. I mean, this is a patriotic <laughs> duty. And uh, that helped as well, I think. Gosh, absolutely, absolutely. And I know in the movie, they show you talking on the phone to the president. Did that happen then? Did you get to speak to him? In person, not on the in person. Okay. It was, uh, I'll never forget at the conclusion of the program, uh, Camille Byros and I, we went over to the Oval Office, the White House and met with the president at the end of the program where he expressed his appreciation and his thanks. And that was memorable. And, uh, yeah. I get that one. <laughs> yeah, I bet, I bet. That's an incredible. That was, that, that, that was President Bush. And then after the Deepwater Horizon oil explosion, after that was over, uh, again, Camille and I with our entire family were invited into the Oval Office to meet with uh, President Obama, and that was a tremendous thrill for my uh, for my children, who had a chance to, uh, and me too, but but had a chance to meet the president in the Oval Office, which was very exciting. Yeah, I bet. Goodness me, what an opportunity! And you've got three kids and grandkids as well. Four, three kids and four grandkids, all girls, the grandkids. Amazing, amazing. So. 
I'm just thinking about how this all plays out in the US. It's very different to the UK. You have much deeper pockets for sure, um, obviously. But with these compensation funds, there's one for 9-11, you've named Deepwater Horizon, the BP oil spill. But does, is there a compensation fund for everything? Because surely if there's only a select few, what happens to all the other disaster uh, You're a philosopher. <laughs> you're a political philosopher. That is a very difficult question. These funds, these special compensation funds are not ordinary. They're not prevalent. They're not, they're, they're very rare. And they're aberrations from the normal procedures for compensating innocent victims. And they do raise an important political philosophic question. Why only these people? Bad things happen to good people every day in the United States. Yeah. How come 9-11 people or uh, Boston Marathon victims or Sandy Hook first grade, how come they get compensated and everybody else who's the innocent victim of life's misfortune get nothing or have to go to court? And that's why I think in the United States, these programs that we've talked about today are relatively rare because they are inconsistent with the way that innocent victims get compensated in the United States or in Great Britain for that matter. And um, they raise important philosophic issues about equity and fairness. And I think it's important that these 9-11 type funds remain very, very rare. And I think they will be in the United States. I don't think this is the wave of the future. Interesting, because I guess it was such a big event and it shocked and horrified the entire That's world. Right. So there was a lot of emotion about it because so many people were caught up in it. That's right. And the 9-11 fund, which used taxpayer money, public money to pay these victims, not airline money or World Trade Center insurance or no, no. This was all public taxpayer money, over $7 billion. And that's why I think it's never been replicated. There's never been since 9-11, another 9-11 type public compensation program. Deepwater Horizon, that was BP oil spill money. Um, and, and Boston Marathon, that was private donations. People sent in checks on their own. So I think the idea that the 9-11 fund is somehow a precedent for the future, for the reasons you've laid out, inferred in your question, um, the 9-11 fund is a precedent for nothing, in my opinion. And there hasn't been another one since. <laughs> No, no. But has there been a disaster like that on such a massive scale since for that to even be an opportunity? Oh, yes. Oh, yes. There have been, I mean, in terms of, of volume, the BP oil spill in the Gulf of Mexico, the Deepwater Horizon oil explosion resulted in 1,250,000 claims. Wow all funded by BP, not the taxpayer, okay. all funded by BP. Interesting, interesting, okay. Wow, so another question I have for you is about, you do a lot of work mediating and bringing people who have very conflicting opinions and views together to come to some sort of agreement. Now, obviously going through heartbreak, divorce, a lot of people listening will be going, what's the best way here to resolve conflict? Because you can come at things from a you know, very heated emotional standpoint. What are your tips for navigating that conflict resolution? First of all, remember, in such conflict resolution, I'm the neutral. I'm not an advocate for one side or the other. I'm trying to get the parties to, yes, 
to agree. Now, some of the techniques, they vary. I always try and put myself in each party's shoes. I try and uh, understand, not empathize as much as understand where each party is coming from. That's one uh, important variable. Secondly, I wanna make sure I understand all of the issues in dispute. I wanna make sure I'm competent, if not more competent than the parties themselves in understanding the, uh, the, the details surrounding the disagreement. Third, I try and be extremely dogged and determined. It's not, I, I, I'm here to stay as long as necessary, folks. We set aside X hours. I don't care if it's X plus Y plus Z hours. We're here to get this done if we can. Doggedness, determination, very important. Next, I think it's important that the right people be in the room to resolve a dispute. I don't want just lawyers. I want clients there. I want the clients to better understand the merits of the dispute and how it might get resolved. Who participates in my mediation is very, very important, I think, in terms of people with authority to get it done. And, and also, I must say, I sort of brace myself for the emotional impact of this. A lot of uh, mediations involve very angry corporate officials. Um, I doubt very much that I would have the skills or ability that you have to deal with very emotional, angry people. Um, I try and avoid clients, mediations involving divorce or family custody. Um, it's so emotional that rationality disappears. <laughs> Absolutely. Beware the wrath of scorned spouses or children or family members. I think it's an altogether different skill set than dealing with corporate officials or lawyers who are very analytical, very reasonable. You may not agree with them, but very reasonable, very objective. And uh, the emotional overhang in what I do is nowhere near what you must experience. Do you feel it's a problem to be overly emotionally invested in some of these cases? I mean, you've seen so much trauma. I mean, the, the Catholic Church must have been a shocking. I don't, I don't know how you cope with that, but obviously there must be some impact going on past there from that, of what you've heard and the stories that you know happened. No, that's right. Now, in the church, which was primarily, uh, I was involved, but primarily that was the work over three or four years of it my colleague, Ms. Byros, Camille, what you find in cases involving highly emotional victims of the Catholic Church, one, give them a right to be heard. Don't just send them a check. Give them a right, if they want it, to come in and meet privately. Second, Catholic Church victims, very rarely do they talk about compensation. They want validation. They want to hear from a neutral like Byros or a neutral like Feinberg. They want to hear from us, it happened. You're credible. We agree with you. You were wronged. You were abused. And you're no longer, you know, whistling in the wind, or you're no longer speaking where no one's listening. We're listening. And I think that validation process 
is very important in convincing sexual abuse victims to um, accept the compensation and um, walk out better than when they walked in. Yeah, you're so, I mean, there's such wise words, Ken. I mean, I deal with victims of domestic abuse a lot. And yeah, as a survivor myself, I know that you just want to be heard. You need to have a voice because you don't have a voice or people don't believe you afterwards. So again, it's, it, yeah, you're so right. Validation and, and having a chance to be heard and, and validated is absolutely essential. It's interesting that as a lawyer, you've learned those things because it doesn't really feel natural that's part of a lawyer's job. But with what you do, it's so unusual that you combine all of those skills. It's a really unique skill set that you've got there to, to help people. Um, so what's next, Ken? What's next for you? What's coming up? Well, let's hope that I don't pick up the, the, the newspapers and see on the front page there's some tragedy somewhere where there's going to be created, established some compensation program. I um, uh, am vigorous in my work. Uh, fortunately, I, I'll, I'll mediate cases. That's different from being asked by a President Bush or a President Obama to set up a compensation program, which is uh, very emotional, very difficult. So uh, what's next is uh, whatever comes my way. One thing I've learned in my work, uh, you may think you know what you're going to be doing next week. You don't. Life has a way of modifying the best laid plans. Some of these people in 9-11, they leave their home in the morning and they a perfunctory goodbye to their husband or their wife or their children. Never see them again. Killed, just dust. There's not even a body to recover. And um, you become, I think, much more fatalistic about life. Don't plan too far ahead because everybody gets thrown a curveball. And um, uh, so I'll just keep doing what I'm doing as long as I can do it and uh, meet very, very interesting people on airplanes. <laughs> Learn about a whole new area of work and trying to advise people on how they can get their lives back in order. And uh, I think much of what I do, you get it, I think. Yeah, I, I do. I mean, I think we we both, you know, we listen, you're a great listener, I know that. And you took me out for dinner last time I was over in New York, which was very kind of you, and listened to everything that I was doing. And it's just fascinating talking to you. I could talk to you for hours and hours. And I've got a copy of your book here, so I'm going to have to get you to sign next time I see you, uh, Who Gets What? And you've also got another book as well, haven't you? Uh, what is Life Worth? Um, so you're, you've written a couple of books, so if people want to read those, obviously they can head over to Amazon, which is where I got mine. Um, and yeah, I am very much looking forward to seeing you again soon, Ken. You have been absolutely fascinating. I have one last question for you that I ask all my guests. Um, as you know, the podcast is called Heartbreak to Happiness. And I think it's really important to know what happiness is for you so that even when you're dealing with these cases or difficult times in life, you can tap into it. So what is happiness for you, Ken? Happiness in my line of work, and it's a very difficult construct because you're dealing, as you just pointed out, with horror, with death. Happiness for me is if in, in, in administering these programs, can I help surviving victims move on with a little bit more assuredness, hope, um, um, determination that, um, that their prospective lives going forward, the sun will shine. And, uh, the, and that the human condition will improve. 
and that what is a very stormy present will be much different in the future. If, if compensation will help, so you have some financial certainty, that's a factor, no doubt. But also the view that, that Feinberg and the community of which we are all members are listening. They're listening to your plight. They're trying to help. And maybe you'll feel going forward that uh, human beings are really um, should be looked upon positively. Uh, I'm pleased if the program that I administer seems to be accepted, seems to be welcomed, appreciated. I go away uh, pretty satisfied and pleased. Happy, I don't know, but pleased. <laughs> pleased. Happy, I think happy, it's important. Happy is meeting great people on airplanes that have <laughs> That's real happiness. Yeah. I think it's important to point out for everyone listening and watching is that you did the 9 11 case for free. You didn't charge anything for that. You gave your time pro bono. That's right. I thought as a patriotic matter, if President Bush is asking me to do this program, how can I get paid off the, you know, the blood of the victims? I would have, that would have never worked. I yeah. think as a pragmatic reason, as well as a patriotic reason, I thought uh, pro bono uh, without compensation was critical. Well, I, I think you're an awesome human being. I've really enjoyed every conversation I've had with you, especially this one today. I know that a lot of your pearls of wisdom there will have resonated with my listeners. And you really are a true shining example of how you can thrive, even going through those tough times and dealing with so much and still be a, a really warm-hearted, empathetic person who, who really does help so many people all over the world. So Thank you so much, Ken, for joining me and for being such a fabulous guest. Well, thank you very much. An honor and a privilege to be part of this. Uh, I hope our paths will cross again soon in Europe or in uh, New York City, wherever. And um, uh, I'd like to keep the conversation going. Well, we absolutely will. And next time you're over here, I will definitely return the favor of taking you out for dinner. So thank you so much. Thank you very much. That's it for today's episode, and I look forward to you joining me on my next episode. That's it for today's episode of Heartbreak to Happiness. Don't forget to subscribe and leave a review to win a free ticket to Sarah's virtual Heartbreak to Happiness retreat. This is a transformative combination of live webinars with Sarah herself, coupled with her empowering online video program designed to help you cope better with your breakup and start feeling happy again. Thank you and join us again on the next episode for another dose of Heartbreak to Happiness.